Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks to everyone who contributes to our services. Thanks to all of you for tuning in each week. We love and miss you terribly. Thanks for being here. So we're going to take a deep look at the selection that we have for today. And as usual, I have a direction that I think the text is taking us. And so we're going to end up there. But as with almost every teaching, there exists a tension with which we must wrestle. So I just wanted to give you a heads up that the end of this message is not going to be a clarion call or an inspirational exhortation only. Although I think the fundamental teaching that is happening in this passage is really quite incredible. The reason is the context in which we live, the real life circumstances in which we find ourselves as followers of Jesus do not actually lend themselves to a mere simple application of simple biblical truths. The reality is our world is complex and the ethics by which we live are complex and intricate and they need nuance. So the end of this message is actually going to be a question, a tension and a challenge. And I wanted to give you a preface really as an invitation for you to bring the fullness of your perspective to contribute to the conversation. I really look forward to hearing from all of you and learning from each of you. So please don't be shy in sharing with me your thoughts and perspectives and with each other. Deal? Okay, deal. In 1980, a brilliant iconic film was released called The Gods Must Be Crazy. Now, if you've seen this movie, something deep within your soul just filled with an overflow of joy in just hearing the name of the movie. If you haven't seen it, Seriously, find it, watch it, it is well worth your time. Set in Botswana, Africa, the logline of the movie reads something like this. An African bushman discovers a Coca-Cola bottle falling from the sky, a gift from the gods, and discovers the blessings and curses of modern civilization. It's hilarious and ridiculous and absurd, which is exactly the point of a comedic movie like this. Now, many movie critics would say it's humorous because it's essentially an expose on modernity, advanced technology, and what kind of humans we have become as a result of these developments we've made. Here's one of my favorite scenes featured in the trailer when a person gets in his car, in their car to drive uh, 50 or so feet to drop mail in the mailbox. And then listen carefully to the narrator after that moment. Civilized man refused to adapt himself to his environment. Instead, he adapted his environment to suit him. So he built cities, roads, vehicles, machinery, and he put up power lines to run his labor-saving devices. But somehow he didn't know when to stop. The more he improved his surroundings to make his life easier, the more complicated he made it. So now his children are sentenced to 10 to 15 years of school just to learn how to survive in this complex and hazardous habitat they were born into. And civilized man who refused to adapt himself to his natural surroundings now finds that he has to adapt and readapt himself every day and every hour of the day to his self-created environment. I love that quote because I think it speaks to a profound insight on the history of our species. Modern man's inability 
or unwillingness to adapt to the environment, and so we adapt our environment to ourselves. I think in no subtle way, the film's premise hangs on this inference. Are the gods actually crazy because the gods are actually us? The story we're going to look at today is the story of Jesus falling asleep in the boat with his disciples on the Sea of Galilee, and then calming the storm after they frantically wake Jesus up. Let's begin reading in verse 22 of chapter 8, and we'll then connect this story to the film's reference. One day, he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they put out, and while they were sailing, he fell asleep. A windstorm swept down on the lake, and the boat was filling with water, and they were in danger. They went to him and woke him up, shouting, Master, Master, we are perishing! And he woke up and rebuked the wind and the raging waves. They ceased, and there was calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? They were afraid and amazed, and said to one another, Who then is this? that he commands even the wind and the water, and they obey him. Now, for those of you who have been around Spark for a while, you'll be familiar with the concept of the Bible as a gem that is turned in the light. And as it turns, you get a different refraction of light, a new perspective, or a stunning new color out of the gem that you may not have seen before. And this is one of those stories that is rich with those colors. First, the story on its face is about Jesus having control over the physical elements of the natural world. Now, this can seem a bit audacious to some reading this story, and it may cause some people to dismiss it and the entirety of the biblical narrative because, honestly, the miracle seems a bit too far-fetched for our modern sensibilities. Those of us who know better because of the advancements of science know that this kind of magic just doesn't happen. We are far too sophisticated to believe in such fictions. There's actually a period of history that some have called the Enlightenment, a development in the 17th and 18th centuries that gave rise to the perspective that reason and science have replaced mythic and magical thinking. In fact, Thomas Jefferson, one of America's founding fathers, influenced by Enlightenment ideas, infamously produced a work entitled The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth, extracted textually from the Gospels in Greek, Latin, French, and English. What a title. What made this publication so astounding is that Jefferson took a razor and glue to extract sections of the Bible that only dealt with what he deemed the moral teachings of Jesus, what he called the pure principles. And he cut out all the miraculous events recorded in the gospel accounts, such as exorcisms, healings, and of course, the calming of the seas. Now, had he been found out, it would have been quite scandalous in his day. So Jefferson kept his 84-page Bible a secret for decades. However, today, Jefferson would find himself in good company as this kind of supernatural control over the physical universe is seen by many as purely absurd mythology. Now, there's a lot to say about the Enlightenment, science, religion, and the interplay between those, and there's plenty of books and resources for us to discuss, and of course I have thoughts on those, but that's for a different time. The problem that I would like to suggest at this juncture 
is that we miss quite a bit when we only think in this way. First, the ancient people had no problem believing that kings, prophets, master teachers, and sages had control over the natural elements. These stories are actually all over ancient texts, not only in religious texts like the Bible, but in Greek philosophy, as well as ancient Near Eastern mythologies. And so this story of Jesus calming the storm is set well within its context. And within that context, we understand that the narrative device being used here is showing further the divinity of Jesus. It's pointing to what the early followers of Jesus thought Jesus was or who he was. It's not so much about the miracle, but about Jesus. Remember the closing line, who then is this that he commands even the wind and the water and they obey him? The radical idea here is that whatever divine power you may happen to believe in, whatever God you may worship is incarnated. There's that big theological word incarnated, meaning became flesh. That's the revolution here. It's that the divine is found in human form. And in this story, that human form, that divinity is calming the storm. It is the physical manifestation of God that commands the natural world. That is the radical idea and a pretty radical claim about Jesus. So that's number one. But for those of you who are still skeptical about a person having control over the natural world, I would like to propose we consider carefully that the story could very well be alluding to a deeper, more profound truth that has resided with humanity for thousands of years and could be the undercurrent of this story. That is essentially, you and I, we actually do have tremendous influence over our physical, natural world. And it's not just because of our intellectual powers, but it's because we are deeply interconnected with our environment. This is true in the technologies that we build, in the changing landscapes that we create through deforestation, dams, canals, artificial islands, and of course, our changing atmosphere and the ensuing damage we are reaping on our planet and thus on ourselves through carbon emissions. We may balk at a story of a man commanding the wind and the waves, but if we pay attention to the thrust of the story, the power to command those natural forces comes down out of heaven and into physical hands of Jesus illustrating that the power is actually with us. And this actually is the commentary in the film. Civilized man adapted his environment to suit him. I propose that reading a story about a wise man filled with the spirit of God, rebuking the storm to bring calm is exactly the story we need in this time. Brilliant, beautiful, and necessary. May more people filled with the Spirit of God rebuke the damage we are causing to our physical, natural world to bring shalom. Now, there's another layer here. In the land at that time, the deity worship that was over the seas was Baal, the storm god. 
In some records, we understand this God to be the weather God over waves, storms, thunders. He's even seen holding a lightning bolt. Now the name Baal means Lord or Master because there is no taming the dysfunctional emotions of this God. He is, he, he is quick to lose his temper. He cares not for anyone. A storm God's got to do what a storm God's got to do. And you will see this name actually mentioned a couple times in your Bible as Beelzebul, as in the gospel, according to Matthew chapter 12, where Jesus says, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your own exorcists cast them out? And at other times in your Bible, the name is Beelzebub, as in 2 Kings first, uh, chapter 1, verse 2, when Ahaziah, the king of Israel, falls through the lattice in his upper chamber, and he sent messengers saying, go and consult Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, to see if I will recover from this injury. Those two names, Beelzebul and Beelzebub, are the same deity. What's fascinating is that it appears that the original name is actually Beelzebaul, meaning something like the Lord is master, a very high up deity. But the ancient Israelites did not call him that, but instead referred to the God as Beelzebub. Because in Hebrew, the word zvuv is an onomatopoeia term meaning fly. Zvuv. As in the insect that distracts us in a vice presidential debate. So by referring to this God as Beelzevuv or Beelzebub, they are calling this God Lord of the Flies, a derogatory name for the prominent God of the Canaanites. Likewise, Jesus, by calming the storm himself, is in many ways falling in line with this same tradition of declaring these other gods such as Baal as mere idols, false gods, and declaring Yahweh to be the one true God. And more significantly, significantly that Yahweh has become embodied in the person of Jesus. This teaching is in concert with the most primal and foundational story in our faith of God creating the Garden of Eden, transforming chaos into order, an empty void into a beautiful garden that we are commissioned to tend, to keep, protect, and to serve. While Baal and darkness and water brings destruction, Jesus is bringing created order, beauty, and shalom. And that is a beautiful turn of that gem. But we can, and we must, go one step further in what this story is teasing out for us in declaring Jesus as that divine, incarnate God. So, this story is probably actually alluding to another story that is fairly well known. Let me see if you can pick up on the references. There's a boat. There's a sea. There's a storm. There's a prophet of God sleeping while the passengers are panicked and concerned about dying. Then there's a calm, and there are astonished crew members aboard the ship. The only thing missing from the Jesus story is an actual fish, but instead we get fishermen. Friends, this story of Jesus calming the storm is most certainly a recollection of the story of Jonah. 
And the reference to Jonah is going to happen several times throughout the Jesus narratives in the gospel accounts. And there is good reason because the message of Jonah is one of the most phenomenally profound declarations in religious history. In short, Jonah, whose very name means dove, a symbol of peace, is a prophet of God who runs from his duties and his calling because he hates the people of Nineveh. They are his mortal enemies. And he runs because he knew that God, Yahweh, is kind, gracious, compassionate, forgiving, and loving. And he, the prophet Jonah, did not want to see that kind of love poured out on his enemies. The Jonah story and the Jesus story are both pointing to the goodness, the faithfulness, and the steadfast love of Yahweh, the God of the ages, the God who has shown and proven to be more loving, more compassionate, more patient, more gracious than any other deity in history, and more than even the prophets themselves would want to declare. So regarding the question the disciples ask, who is this? that even the wind and the waves and the water obey. In my humble opinion, it screams off the pages. This is not just Jesus who is God incarnate. This is the most loving, forgiving, patient, kind-hearted, compassionate, and gracious God you will ever meet in your life. And that deity, that God, that power has become one of us to show us the way, to declare the kind of life we ought to live in this world, the kind of divinity that all humans are looking for. Now, if you need more proof, consider what is written in the Psalms. I will sing of your steadfast love, O Lord, forever. With my mouth, I will proclaim your faithfulness to all generations. O Lord, God of hosts, who is as mighty as you, O Lord? Your faithfulness surrounds you. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Psalm 89. And again, oh, give thanks to the Lord for good, for God's steadfast love endures forever. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out from their distress. God made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Psalm 107. Drawing on the Psalms and the prophets, this story of Jesus, first asleep in the boat, then rising to calm the seas, is a declaration of the great love, everlasting kindness, compassion, and mercy of God found in and through the person, life, and teachings of Jesus. And if we consider ourselves, therefore, followers of this Jesus, we will humble ourselves to this same kind of care, to this same kind of forgiveness, patience, loving kindness, compassion, and mercy even to our enemies, the ones we hate the most. All of those illusions in this story, boat, prophet, sleeping, storm, this is the Jonah story told once again of a God of great love. My friends, yes, the gods are crazy. Baal is contemptuous. Aphrodite, she's out of control. Dionysus, 
hot-tempered. Pan is manic. But this God, the God of Abraham and Sarah, Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob, Leah, and Rachel, the God of Deborah and Yael, the God of Elijah and David and Solomon, the God of Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Matthew, Bartholomew, and Paul, this God, Jesus, is crazy to love the world, the sinner, the Roman, the Jew, the Greek, the barbarian, the Scythian, the slave, and free. To extend kindness and patience and forgiveness to his followers, to his neighbors, and yes, even to his enemies. Even to those who would crucify him. Just this last week, Penn Jillette, the famous magician of the Penn and Teller duo, wrote an op-ed for CNN that caught my eye and honestly astonished me. Penn Jillette is an avowed atheist, a libertarian, and a public intellectual who does not put up with any, I'll say, nonsense. The title of his article is, You Have One Job, Joe, obviously referring to the president-elect. And what is that one job in the midst of this crazy socio-political context that we're in? Gillette writes, I don't care if Joe raises taxes. I don't care if Joe helps add stupid counterproductive regulations. I don't care about anything except love and kindness. I've never seen Joe as a hero, but now we need a Nelson Mandela. We need MLK, and it needs to be Joe. We need someone who can love the people who hated him and lied about him. He must rise to the occasion. In reference to people who voted differently, Gillette writes, These people are not monsters. These people are our neighbors and our relatives. These people are us, and we need someone who can teach us to love them again. Please fill all our hearts with love for each other. Please. And he ends by saying, Please teach us to love and understand and move on together. I don't want to make any statements about the election, the results, or any of that. I just simply want to say, historically, the roots of that sentiment are in the teachings and life of a first century Nazarene, a Jewish sage who persisted in the Hebrew tradition of the Psalms and the prophets of declaring the everlasting loving kindness of God, who embodied that compassion and mercy and commissioned his followers to go and do likewise in this world. The poetic irony of the question, who is this that even the wind and the waters obey him? Is that the wind and the waters obey, but did Jonah and will his disciples? And that my friends is where I believe the text has led us from the story of Jonah to the psalmist called to worship to Jesus calming the wind and the waves, to a libertarian atheist pleading with the president-elect to fill all our hearts with love for each other. I started out by saying we would not end on an inspirational exhortation, but a question, so here it is. The dilemma with which we must now wrestle is how do we understand and apply this radical love of enemy with an equally clarion call and push towards justice, truth, and reconciliation. I consider this question to be one of the most poignant and significant that we are dealing with 
in our current context. Because for every call of unity, there is a call for accountability. For every call of forgiveness, there is a call for repentance and repair. For every expression of moving forward, there is a reminder that the past is actually still with us. In other words, the call to love your enemy is not to dismiss the prophetic call to condemn actions and behaviors that are evil and destructive. To love is to hate that which harms God's creation and God's image. And that, my friends, is the question. How do we love our enemy and pursue justice? So as we enter into a time of communion, the spirit with which we enter today is one of submission and humility. A recognition that what we celebrate and commemorate at this table is no simple thing. The act of Jesus laying down his life for us and for his enemies is one we must remember with a sober heart. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink this all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. All are welcome at this table.